Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, we have two guests. First up, I'm joined by the new coach of the University of Texas, Steve Sarkeesian. We'll talk about his road to recovery from alcoholism, which cost him the USC job, to getting back to the top of the profession. And what was so appealing to him about Texas? Then we'll bring on Richard Johnson of the Split Zone Duo podcast. RJ will help us break down what makes Sark's offense so interesting and tough to stop. We'll also talk about the ways NFL teams run offense that college football teams are now trying to replicate. Plus, we'll ask RJ, the Jacksonville Jaguars fan, about Urban Meyer's first misstep as an NFL coach. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And if you want to get in touch with the show, send us an email at aptop25mailbag, aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. In future episodes, we'd like to take some of your questions between my guests and myself, answer them on the air. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast, uh, a pleasure and an honor to talk to the new head coach of the University of Texas, Steve Sarkeesian. Sark, uh, it's been a while since you and I have had a chance to talk. Uh, I'm, uh, congratulations on the new gig. Hope you're doing well and staying warm there in, uh, in Austin. Well, thanks. thanks for having me on. It's uh, been a good transition, a little, little different here with the weather going on, but I appreciate you, Pete, appreciate you checking on us. So before we talk about right now, I, I kind of do want to talk about your journey to get to here because obviously it was a pretty interesting one. And I got, I got a couple of questions harkening back to, you know, a tough time in your life and a tough time in your career. But I think it's inter- it'll be interesting to sort of, like I said, uh, talk about the path that led you here. After what happened at USC, when you get let go and you're sort of facing your demons, right? How, how am I going to help myself get better here? Did you at any point think, man, I blew it. Like, I'll never get an opportunity to be where I was. I had my dreams here in this profession, and it all went away. Did you ever face those moments of thinking, like, man, like, I just blew this? Well, I think realistically, yeah. I mean, I I think you have to, you know, there's always kind of those dark days when you're like, you know, you don't know what the future is going to hold for you or, or where, you know, where your life's going to head and where your profession's going to head to. And, you know, I had to, I had to really get myself to a point of let's just focus on today and let's dig into today. How good can I be today? Whatever, whatever today was asking me to do. And and let's start kind of rebuilding the foundation, rebuilding, um, you know, what you stand for and what you're about. And um, over time, those maybe those thoughts of I didn't know where my career was going to go or would I have another opportunity um, kind of diminished. And, and, and the focus was more on you know, kind of where I was headed. And I didn't know exactly what that would be, but I knew that as the days started stacking and as opportunities started to show themselves that um, real opportunities would present themselves. And it was just a matter of trying to align myself with really good people along the way. During that time when you're sort of, again, taking it day by day and, and figuring out what your future might hold, dealing with alcoholism, did you ever think to yourself, I wonder if coaching and coaching, not just coaching football, but coaching football at the highest level is a good fit for someone who's trying to recover, trying to rehab and trying to get out of this place. It, it is, it's such an intense lifestyle. It's an unorthodox lifestyle. It's a, it's, it's long hours. It's, it's isolation from your family at times. Did you ever have to sort of wonder if you could do that, that thing that you love at the highest level and also recover? I, I didn't really ever wonder that, you know, I really tried like I said, I aligned myself with some pretty good people, some, some very high level people, some people that, um, 
have been extremely successful, not just in the football world, but in, but in their industries um, that live big lives. And um, when I got aligned with those people, I felt like you know, if, you, if you can live a big life and, and do the things that they're able to do and be successful, not only in their profession, but from a personal standpoint, why couldn't I do that here? And then started to get aligned with different people in my own profession. And then I felt like, man, I, I've, got a, I've got a great platform here that I can be successful not only as a football coach, um, as a leader, um, but also uh, one that, that, could, that could really serve to show people that, that there is another way to, to, to go through our profession. And, um, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm, I'm somewhat of an inspiration that way to some guys that, that maybe are still trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, that the platform that I've been, that I've been you know, provided is one that I don't take lightly. I, I think that it's something that um, this, you know, what I've what I've gone through is real. Um, I, I don't think it, it's it's unique to me. I do think that it is it is a reality in our society. It's a reality in our profession. And if I can be if I can be an inspiration to some and, and utilize my platform that way, um, I think that that's important and that's something that I that I try to utilize and to help others. And that's really been an approach and a shift and a focus of mine here for the last six years that I, that I think has not only helped me, but has helped others. And that, that's probably the key to the drill. I understand it's a, it's a changing the way you live, but do you think of it as also changing the way you coach? Without a doubt. I'm much more tuned with our players, much more dialed into, um, you know, what they go through on a daily basis and, and how I can help them. And, you know, to think when you, you start dealing with 18 to 22 year old males and um, the stresses they have in their lives and maybe their coping mechanism to deal with those stresses. And if I can find them and show them a better way to do that, um, that sure would not only behoove us as a program, but, but them as individuals and, and their future and where their lives are trying to head and what they're trying to accomplish. So, um, in the end, I mean, it has really been a, a really cool, positive thing. And it took, it took me to have to fail. It took me to have to kind of eat that, that big piece of humble pie to get to a point to where, uh, in the end, I'm a better person because of it, because of it. I'm a better coach because of it, because of it. I'm, I'm helping others now more than ever because of it. And, um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that, you know, because, as much of the successes that I had early in my career, I'm better off today having gone through what I went through and I'm, I'm better in all aspects of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to help others now more than ever than, than I ever was before. And I was doing pretty good at it before, but I think I've gone to another level with it. And, um, the reality of it is, you know, if, if we can help somebody along the way, whether it's one a day, one a week, one a month, whatever that is, geez, it sure seems like we're having a, a pretty big impact on the bigger picture of things that, that are going on right now. So let's jump forward to Texas. And this is a question I'll ask you, you know, when I'm going to ask you why Texas was the right fit for you. And quite frankly, I can hear people already in the audience listening to this going like, we could, duh, it's Texas. Like, why wouldn't it be? But listen, this is a place that's had about a decade of sort of sort of trying to find the best way to max out its resources. So when you're when you're looking at Texas, what were the things that appealed to you that made you think for where I am right now, this is the place for me? Well, I think I I probably have to go back a couple years. You know, I had some opportunities present themselves to me um for the past couple of years. And I, at that point I knew okay, I'm going to be a head coach again. I want to make sure it's right. I want to make sure it's something where um, if I take this job, I can be there for the next 15 years. I can do something. I can be part of a run and part of a legacy that I was part of with Pete Carroll at USC. Uh, I was part of with Nick Saban at Alabama um, and, and watch those guys do it. And so as I navigated my way through some opportunities that presented themselves and said no, when Texas got presented to me, uh, the first thought was yes. And then it was, okay, now let's look at it and let's see what this looks like. And I think clearly when, when you think about the University of Texas and you dig into it, naturally the first 
couple things that come to mind are the rich history and tradition, right? Um, you think about the great players, great teams that have played here, the great coaches. Um, you think about the resources and, and the, the backing from alumni and donors. Um, and, then you, and then you start digging into the fertile recruiting ground in the great state of Texas and, and all of the players that come from here. Um, you think about, for me, that the, the landing spot in the city of Austin and all that it has to offer, but also kind of being centrally located. Um, and then you think about the challenge and the challenge of it. And as I went through it, and I even went into last season and dug into that roster and dug into the team, um, you know, they finished 7-3. And, and you think about losing to Oklahoma in overtime. You think about a fumble against TCU going in inside the five with, with, the, with a couple minutes to go in the ball game. You mm-hmm. think about missing a field goal against Iowa State, and you go, wow, I mean, they're, they're, they're three, four plays away from being 10-0 and and talking about being in the college football playoff on the flip side of that you think about winning a couple other games in overtime um that they did win and they're that close to being a five and five team so the reality of it is i i I felt like the program is in a place of which um we're not as far away as, as maybe some would think um we've got great support from the administration we've got great support from our donors we've got a roster that is talented um, and we've got a great product to recruit to with rich history and tradition. So there was a lot of positives to this thing that I felt like this is much different than when I went to the University of Washington um, coming off of an 0-12 season the year mm-hmm. before. This is much different than when I went to USC inheriting a program um, that was really still on probation. Um, we're actually in pretty good shape, and Knowing, you know, some of the things that I've gained over the past few years, um, most notably working with Coach Saban at Alabama, thinking back to my experience at, at USC when, Co- when Coach Carroll inherited that program at USC in the early 2000s and the run we went on, I just thought to myself, why can't we be that team? Why can't we go on that run if we do it the right way and assemble a great staff and recruit the way I know I think we can recruit and develop players and know I think we can develop them? You know, why can't we be that program that goes on another run like Texas was on in the 2000s as well under Coach Brown? So there was a lot of things. It ended up being a no-brainer situation for me and decision to to take this job and, and couldn't be more pumped and excited about it. Uh, I want to ask you about your time in the NFL, your second time in the NFL, because I think some people might forget, 2004, you you were with the Raiders, when, when part, of the, part of Lane's staff, but 2004 is a lifetime ago it, it, as far as the way football changes, right, to a certain degree, evolution. In your 2017-28 team with the Falcons, and then you come back and become Alabama OC, and we saw that offense last year uh, just, you know, play at a really high level, do some really interesting and creative things. I'm wondering what that time with the Falcons um, did to teach you about maybe some new things about offense or things that you brought from that time with the Falcons to Alabama that maybe made help you make Alabama as good as it was. Well, it was, it was a unique time. You know, when I, when I got to Atlanta, um, you know, I was really, I was coming in right behind Kyle Shanahan, and they had just got on their Super Bowl run, and they had a tremendous year. And there was probably a little bit of an adjustment for me coming in, um, kind of inheriting his offense in essence. Um, you know, Dan Quinn was our was our head coach, and he really wanted to keep the offense, and I and I don't blame him. And so there was probably a learning curve for me there of inheriting his offense, but also trying to implement my stuff. Um, and, and probably over that span of that year and then into the next year, um, the second year, you know, Julio Jones leads the NFL in receiving my second year there. Uh, Calvin Ridley is the leading rookie receiver in the NFL my second year there, and Matt Ryan has a great year. But what, what came out of it was how do you find a way in that league to ensure that your best players are getting the ball and getting the ball with opportunities to, to create explosive plays? And then after that year coming back to college football, I'd never really lost sight of that. Of You know, you have to ensure it's one thing to run good plays, but you have to ensure that your best players are getting the opportunities to touch the ball, to create those plays, mm. um, to create the explosive plays. And that's really what we tried to do over the past two years. And uh, whether it was Tua and Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs and Devontae Smith and that crew, 
to the next year with Mac Jones and Devontae Smith and the Najee Harris and the Jalen Waddle, that was really the approach. Uh, it was a little bit more of an NFL-style approach, not that we didn't utilize the RPOs and, and the rules and things. I just felt like from the motions, the formations, um, the play-action pass game, we just wanted to ensure that our best players were having opportunities to touch the ball, um, which was something you had to do in the NFL. I mean, everybody knew where Julio Jones was every play. How did you try to get him open? And that was always the focus from week to week, and we were able to do that in year two, um, and we, it was just something we carried with us here the last couple of years at Alabama, and, and I don't think we're, we're going to get away from I, I think we'll hold on to that moving forward. Okay, one more. I know you got a hard out, but I'll let you out here on this. And I know you can't talk about specific recruits, but there has been some very positive news on the recruiting trail coming from Austin over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I, I, what I would ask you is, one of the reasons why we heard that you got hired was because of the ties that had been built between Alabama and and the state of Texas. Um, you walk in there and have a couple of nice recruiting wins. How much do you have to build up relationships, build upon relationships? How comfortable are you recruiting within the state of Texas? Well, I'm, I'm very comfortable. You know, I'm, I'm a relationship-based guy, um, whether it's in recruiting or our current roster or donors or ex-players, you know, whatever that is. I mean, I, I believe in relationships. I believe in making those connections. And I think being authentic and real um, helps in that. And, you know, I value that, I think, about myself. And, you know, the, the reality of it is recruiting is our lifeline. And um, I love it. I, I love the opportunity to recruit as, as a head coach. I love being engaged with the players. Uh, you know, I, I think – you know, being connected to recruits on a daily basis is big as much as it is as with our own roster, and there's a balance in that. Um, but the reality of it is we've got a great product here at the University of Texas to recruit to, and I think this is, to me, the total package. And so when I have those opportunities to convey that to young men and their families and coaches and, and be connected to them um, and develop that relationship, I think they come to find out that it is authentic and that I believe it. it it's not something that I'm selling I truly believe that. That's why I took the job here. And I think through time, as, as we work our way through this, uh, as long as we're recruiting the right types of individual, not just good players, but good character kids, good students that can represent the university well, um, we're going to be in good shape for a long time. Steve Sarkeesian is the new coach at the University of Texas. Sark, it's good to have you, uh, well, back at the top here, leading the program. Uh, congratulations. Stay warm in Austin, and hopefully we'll get to see each other maybe in person, hopefully down the road, uh, not too far, in the not-too-distant future. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on, and uh, look forward to catching up in person as well. Hook em. Joining me next on the podcast is my friend Richard Johnson. You can find him at RJ Wrights, RJ underscore Wrights on Twitter. You can also listen to him. Uh, at the Split Zone Duo podcast with his friend Alex Kirshner and Stephen Godfrey, and it's a great podcast despite Godfrey's presence. Um, <laughs> guys totally carry that dude, by the way. Um, Someone has to. <laughs> RJ, man, I totally appreciate you coming on, and I wanted to bring you on as sort of a follow-up to my conversation with Steve Sarkeesian um, because, you know, we make a lot – we made a lot of um, – a lot about how Sarkeesian did such a great job with Alabama's offense. And I wanted to bring on somebody who does a good job of sort of breaking down why exactly that Alabama, Alabama offense was good and whether it's transferable to Texas when you don't necessarily have all the best players, right? So let's yeah. just, let's just start there. When you looked at what Sarkeesian was doing this past year, past couple of years, but especially this past year at Alabama, what were some of the places you went, oh, that's really cool. I understand why that is so tough to stop. Yeah, they so obviously Mac Jones is not a, a mobile threat. Um, and, uh, you know, Tua wasn't really, but could run a little bit. Um, and one of the most interesting things I think Sark did was he basically ran this RPO that didn't have the quarterback uh, involved in it because the quarterback's not going to run. Mac's not going to run. Uh, and it was basically counter. And to what I understand, it was a pre-snap RPO and, and they would come in and counter um, for, for people listening. Whenever you see 
whenever you see two offensive linemen pull or a guard and an H back pull to the opposite side of the offensive line, it is more or less always counter. Um, some coach is going to listen to this and scream at me, but to oversimplify that's counter. Um, it's something that the Washington football team rode to the Super Bowls in eighties, uh, Nebraska, rolled to it in the 80s and 90s, rolled to championships with that play as well. Um, counter and its versions, destructive. And when you've got guys like Alabama has on its offensive line, uh, it can really cook as a running play. But what Alabama did a lot, actually, is they bolted on a pass on top of it. So the run action looks the exact same to a linebacker or, or a defensive back or whatever, uh, but then they would throw like a glance route behind it to, which is like a, a sort of something in between a slant and a deep post. So at like seven to nine yards, um, they would throw that behind that to John Mechie or sometimes Devontae Smith. Um, they they scored on it the red zone against Auburn. They ran it a couple times in the SEC championship game. Uh, it was really one of their staple plays. And it's just sort of the evolution of offensive football into where you can do that. Um, and he was doing that stuff with the Falcons. So that's, I mean, he's going to bring that to Texas, I would imagine. Um, now, it's a little bit different in college, more destructive in college because of the rules on offense and how offensive linemen can, for all intents and purposes, get eight yards down the field without the flag getting called on them. One of these days, they're going to change that rule. Uh, I think they have to. But I, I think that's one of the things that you'll see uh, at Texas. Another thing that you'll see uh, is – as far as what they do in the passing game, Sark does not like to throw uh, static routes. Like there's not a lot of curls or sit down routes where a wide receiver just goes out, sits down and they throw on the ball. Sark really likes to have guys running, have them in motion. There's there's a coaching clinic where he talks about this, where he's like, look, they're athletes. Um, you know, we need to get them in space and we need to get them moving. Uh, they do a lot of stuff, a lot of that behind the line of scrimmage too. I mean, when you look at how they use Devontae Smith, really use Devontae Smith, I mean, they are doing some motion stuff with him where it, it, it's so subtle that you don't even really realize it. It's, it's, he's out wide and they'll bring him back to sort of a slot position and then they'll to, to get him into space and then he'll do what he does uh against a nickel or a corner or what have you so i'm interested in in what this looks like but i, I texas's problem like our friend andy staples has has detailed so many times texas's problem is one of development um, they are, you know, it, it, they are still Texas to an extent as far as, uh, acquiring talent, but developing talent at Texas hadn't been there in a decade plus. And that's really what they need here. Uh, you know, I think this can work. I, I am interested in how this is going to look. I know everybody's psyched about the quarterback after the bowl game. Mm -hmm. Um, well, and they have another so one behind him too. That is pretty right. Good. Right. Yeah. So I think this is going to be fun. Um, the, the interesting thing in just literally just talking to Sark was, you know, he even pointed out uh, something that I mean, think of it from this perspective. Sark is walking into how, how often do you get the opportunity to coach a team that last year went seven and three, lost an overtime game uh, against Oklahoma, against a very good team, an overtime game against Oklahoma. Uh, lost a close game where you miss a field goal at the end to uh, Iowa State, another top 10 team, and had a game that got away from them against TCU where they basically were a, a two yards away from salting the game uh, with a touchdown run and fumbled at the goal line, turns everything around. And that's not to say, listen, so Texas has had this problem of being in too many close games, losing close games, losing to TCU. For God's sakes, if Texas could just fix that problem. Uh, and th <laughs> nothing is more indicative of the problems that Texas is the fact that they have been owned by TCU over the last, you know, since TCU uh, entered the Big 12. But, you know, Sark sort of said, listen, I, I looked at this roster and I looked at this team and, and there's a lot of good stuff here. And I think, listen, there's also a lot of good stuff at Texas with a lot of money and there's, and there's things on those lines. So why would you take Texas? Well, duh, that's why you would take Texas. But there is a lot of, there, there is talent. As you just said, there is talent that has come in the front door there that can be worked with. And it'll be interesting to see how he does develop that. But there is a lot, there's a lot to do with Texas there. He is, he is probably inheriting a better Texas than, 
Charlie Strong did from Mac. I would be interested to see if he's inheriting a better Texas than Herman did from Strong. Strong had really good recruiting classes, but so much attrition from those classes. I'd be interested to see that matchup if somebody ran somebody like Bud Elliott read the numbers on that. I, I also am very interested in sort of politically what Texas is he getting? Um, you know, with these regents and Crystal Conte and and that dynamic. Um, you know, I know that the the regents sort of still drive the ship over there. Um, and Crystal Conte got this splash hire done. Uh, and and you know, I don't. Crystal Conte got the splash hire done. I think he needed to get this done. Um, but what what is what is the program? I know that people. It's it's just interesting to me where Texas as a football program is in the landscape of both the university writ large, the state, and then the Big 12. Because the thing that I've never really put a finger on is, you know, in the South, it's you are very clearly measured against your rival. Auburn, Alabama, Florida, Florida State. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And as far as I understand it, it Texas and Oklahoma are not as one-to-one compared. It's kind of, it's, it's just always been sort of confusing to me, Ralph. And I, I know you've been around it for a long time. You probably have a better answer than that, but Oklahoma is going to be a playoff contender next year and has been a fairly perennial playoff contender for the last few years, but it didn't seem like that was the reason Tom Herman got fired. That's an interesting point, RJ. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. There is, I don't think Texas and Oklahoma react to one another in such a clear, correlated way that some of these other rivals do, where the rivalry game sometimes, and, and you know, maybe, and you know, maybe that's both of us being a little outsiders and not truly understanding all the nuances there. And somebody who's a little closer might push back on that concept. But I, I tend to agree with you that I, I don't see that dynamic in why Texas has been sort of manic. In, in fact, I could also would say Oklahoma obviously has to recruit well in Texas, but even that aspect of, well, we're losing recruits to Oklahoma. Everything has changed as far as sort of recruiting in the Big 12 in that area with the influx of the SEC. Oklahoma recruits far more in California than it ever had before and going out to Florida. So it's not even some of those deals where you're like literally, listen, they're going to recruit some of the same players, but they're not necessarily like, oh, we just lost to the guy we should have had. I mean, there's some of that. There's definitely some of that. So it it is interesting, the relationship there. And of course, not having A&M as a rival anymore, right? That was the other yeah. big rival and, and having that off the board. So that aspect doesn't, I, I, right, doesn't drive Texas as much. And it is interesting compared to, you know, we see Auburn firing Gus Malzahn and, and there's a pretty clear reason why. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's funny that you say that they sort of don't overlap as much as you think. You know, Spencer Rattler's from Phoenix, right? So Spencer Rattler is not some, you know, Dallas Westlake, Texas kid that, that oh, he's not like Sam Ellinger, basically, where, right. you know, earmarked to Texas from the day he was born. Um, it, it is just an interesting dynamic and it's interesting where Texas will go in the future. But, uh, you know, with the talent on that roster, I, you know, people are saying that they they should have ran Bijan Robinson more during the season. Sark is not going to hesitate to do that. Sark is going to feed the beast. Um, well, one I, of, you know, one of the things Sark said on on the in the interview was, you know, one of the things he and I'm going to this will this will stream into another portion of our conversation. One of the things he learned in the NFL is it's one thing to run a great play. It's a it's a completely different thing to run a great play with your best players. Like you have to figure out how to run great plays with your best players. And he talked about how often Julio touched the ball at the Falcons, and and how we you know you, you kind of have to, and how that is harder to a certain degree in the NFL because matchups change every week and things along those lines. But you're right. I think Sark and Kiffin both have that in their profile. They will. The, if if it works and they have a player who's good, that player is going to get the ball a ton, as you can see with Leon. When we talk about what like the national championship game, and you mentioned it with Devonte, right? You have people watching that game. How is Devonte Smith open? My God, how is Devonte Smith open? 
because that's what Sark's offense is built around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it, 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 it is the sun, moon, and stars, and and that is, it's a way to scheme the game. And when you've got guys like Devonte Smith, when you've got those types of guys, it makes play calling uh, a lot easier. I mean, you just find ways during the week to get those guys, guys, the ball uh, in in ways that are advantageous and ways that can sort of be the most successful. I know we're going to transition a little bit, so I I won't spoil what I'm going to say, but that is sort of, that is sort of what the brilliance has been with Sark in, in over the last season. I am very interested, honestly, in sort of the thought experiment of what Alabama would have looked like with Jalen Waddle healthy over the full balance of the season. Um, It's, you know, it's something that, that we'll never know, but I I do think it's very interesting how would did not having Waddle make Sark sort of theoretically a little bit simpler, but then again, as a defense much harder to defend, it's not easier. It's not easy to defend because Devontae Smith is so, so good. Um, but what could they have done or what wouldn't they have done if they had Jalen Waddle as well to, to sort of feed the beast and get the ball, uh, you know, 10 times a game as well. So uh, if anybody's listening to this podcast, I brought up this comment I got from Chip Kelly when I was doing a story about Ryan Day. Um, Kelly and Day are close. They go way, way back. Uh, and one of the things I had in talking with Kelly asked him about, you know, you know, what makes Day good, right? <laughs> like that, that, that very obvious cliche question of, hey, what makes this coach good? And he said one of the things he felt Day and Chip, for that matter, gained from their time in the NFL was this concept that every week you have to be a little different in the NFL. In college, you can sort of have your a very a, a very a somewhat static identity. In the NFL, matchups are going to dictate what your offense is. So you have to morph a little bit, and you have to find what. It, and which also brings me back to Sark and the idea that lest you have to find the matchup that works for you, but you best damn make sure that that matchup includes your best player. And that's sort of maybe where the magic happens. So when I say that to you, that's a that's a cool thing for Chip to say to a sports writer because it's easily digestible and it's kind of like at a layperson's level I can understand that. But when I say that to you for someone who has a little better knowledge of the X and O's, what does it mean to you when I say that what colleges are trying to do a little more of is the NFL concept of we are a little different from week to week depending on our matchups? Yeah, so I, I think the interesting thing about it is, first and foremost, not everybody can do that right Right. um you you have to you have to talk about who can actually do that sort of thing um you know god love pat fitzgerald but northwestern is not changing from week to week northwestern cannot change from week to week particularly on offense they have to do what they do but you know uh like florida against georgia Florida was not really pounding the wheel routes to death, but they saw that they could against Georgia in the cocktail party, and so they did. Uh, Alabama, you know, they, they, you know the class of teams we're talking about sure. that can do this sort of thing. Um, in the NFL, sort of because everybody's got good players, it's sort of a double-edged sword, and I guess we're more talking about offense to defense here. But on offense – you, you come into the week and you say, okay, this is the deficiency in their defense. And we have the guys or a guy or whatever, uh, if you're a good NFL team, we have the guys that can exploit that, right? Now, that's a fundamental difference in, in college sort of writ large. Because in college football, you may be able to see what it is the other team is ex- exploitable at, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can go after it because wh- maybe you don't have the guys, whether they're not physically good enough, whether they're not, uh, whether they are not developed enough mentally uh, to digest what they need to do. Because remember, you don't have a ton of practice time. Uh, you don't have a, a lot of hands-on time with them. I know the NFL doesn't have a ton of practice time either, but you know, when, but they're when dealing the guys with adults back, who have been in the league a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, right, so they don't need right. Quite as much. When the guy, when the guys come back from their Tuesday off day, 
well, hey, we can sit here for 16 hours on Wednesday and figure this out. In college, obviously, it's a different animal. So you can't do everything you may want to do as a coach in college versus what you can do in the NFL because of just time restraints and all that kind of stuff. So it is a little bit of an interesting way to skin the cat um, in both sort of versions of football. Uh, and and I think it's sort of why you saw, for instance, Ohio State come out and look completely different against Clemson in the semifinal because they they had the time to put in the stuff that they knew Clemson was exploitable at uh, based on what they were able to do in the Fiesta Bowl the year before and also what they were able what they had seen from Clemson on tape. So as far as how you sort of think about it and and. Just theoretically take stock in the game and and how matchups are uh, are exploited. The, the Patriots are sort of the clearest example of a team that changes and morphs from week to week. Now, yeah, it's a little unfair to to compare the Patriots of the last two decades to the rest of the league because of who they have as the head coach and the continuity. But all that continuity allows them to be so amorphous from week to week. I mean, they can come in. The other thing is that continuity allows them to, let's say it's th- it's the third quarter, third down against the Dolphins. They have to get off the field. Bill will say, we, you know, we play the Dolphins twice a year in 2008 or whatever. And I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but in 2008, we ran this pressure package on a third down against the Dolphins and we got off the field. Let's cook it back up. Like it's stuff like that, that you can just do in the NFL that you don't see to that extreme in college football. Right. And you can be a little bit more that way. At, at, right, the elite talent teams because a you have a lot of talent at your disposal to be a lot of different things. So the diversity of talent and the the amount of talent allows you to do that. Um, and I would also think that at the elite, at well, you also well, and this actually brings me back to what Sark did at Alabama because you know, in talking to someone on uh, at Alabama. One of the things he said to me was, don't underestimate what it has meant to us that, like, Devontae's a senior, Najee's a senior, three of our offensive linemen have been in college for four years. What, you know, Nick tells his guys when they come through, you know, new coaches, and there's always a bunch of new coaches. That he's that the most amazing thing about Alabama is you talk about continuity is the continuity is all saving. And and it flows from there because the rest of the coaching staff changes a lot. But what he what he, you know what he tells coaches is, listen, you will have the best talent, but it's going to be young and inexperienced, and don't underestimate like how much you're going to have to coach these guys, right? I know they're really talented, but all these kids are going to be playing as 18 and 19 year olds because they're talented enough to do so, and all our juniors are going to go to the NFL. Um, but I think a big reason why Alabama was so potent this year and was able to make up for the lack of Jalen Waddell and somehow was a better offense with Mac instead of Tua and without Judy and Ruggs to go with the other great receivers. <laughs> like they actually had probably had more talent in 2019, but they were a better offense this year. And what this person told me is like, listen, the, it was really invaluable to have this, this stock of very, um, experienced players that we could put a lot on we they had learned a lot we could put we could put extra layers on them and we could do a lot more than maybe normally could as talented as as we are there are even limits at alabama that how much we can put on our kids because some so many of them are playing at such a young age yeah and consider how beneficial that is in 2020 right and and when yes and when we're zooming when when we're zooming and when we're you know and we don't have a fall ca- or a spring practice and we don't when we have a truncated fall camp and a weird fall camp and a, and a season that starts all that they were able to weather all of these storms because they had such experience and so did the other teams in the playoff but you know we we all saw what Alabama did to the sport all season and this just steamroll of consistency like that's the thing that I think it's that's the thing that I think for me set this Alabama. Uh, team apart because they did not have and don't really have the down 
weird game, right? You know, you think about what it what it typically takes to beat Alabama. Uh, you know, if you're not Clemson, you know this. It usually takes a, a Herculean effort from a quarterback, right? And, and and it takes Alabama to, in some extent, sort of beat themselves or whatever. But this Alabama team wasn't. It wasn't that. And and they from week to week just steamrolled everybody in a way that was so, I, I think, understated given what happened in the rest of the sport and the rest of the world around all of these guys. And that's why I think this team uh, is so good looking back on it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I was trying to get that across in, in writing about the team leading up to the night of the game and after the game of this idea that in the most – herky-jerky and uncertain season the simple fact that they were able to perform at such a high level so consistently and and the the you know it was just a metronome right it was just the, the machine just kept on cranking at Alabama as if you know nothing no pandemic here you know even though their coach gets tested you know test positive for COVID twice um but nothing's it, 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 when all Everything was set up to, for even Alabama to be shaken a bit for the 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 most stable program, maybe the most stable thing in all of sports to be shaken a bit. Alabama was unshaken; they were un, undeterred uh, throughout this season, and that's what made it really so amazing. And I would also add on this, so, so just to pivot a second here, when we going back to the idea of what is what college football is trying to take from pro football and how the success Alabama had with Sark. If people look at Bill O'Brien, why would Saban hire him? And listen, Bill O'Brien's reputation has been just trashed, right? Because of what happened. But for a lot of reasons that have to do with personnel moves and the power struggle. and Bill O'Brien, Bill O'Brien, the GM ruined Bill O'Brien, the coach's reputation. Without questions. But I think when people, if you step back and remove yourself from all of what went on with the Texans I th- and ask why does Saban want Bill O'Brien, my guess would be that's why. That like what we talked about before, that idea of I want someone here who can bring what the NFL does offensively to what we do here in college, and I think he can he can keep what we have and add to it. Now maybe it doesn't work, but I think that's why that move was made. Yeah, yeah, and he got my guy Doug Marone for the offensive line. Um, yes. So yeah, it, it's it's interesting, and I, I like it. It the way that staff changes, and every year, every year, and the way they are able to. It, I think Saban sort of has this. It's an interesting push-pull he has because he gets all of these brilliant coaches in and he is able to balance, particularly on offense, letting those guys cook to an extent and, and, and allowing them to sort of do what they want and sort of be something of a head coach on offense um, and, and, and let them sort of have a sandbox with all of that talent. On defense, it's a little bit different because, look, you're running Knicks defense. But, yeah. but on, on offense, he's always sort of been able to in the last – probably since lane i guess 2012 Mm -hmm. 2013 um and of course nick will tell you that he wanted to do some outside of the box throw pass stuff with nuss and with McElwain. i don't know how true that really is but um because he's sort of gotten hands off and let the offense do whatever it does and and morph and change and evolve with the rest of the sport that is his brilliance and that is i think when when we put the epitaph on his career similar to bear Bryant, he saw the way the sport was going and said, we got to go with it and we got to do it better than anybody else. And that's what they've done. Right. It's it's the idea of, I know what I want. I'm going to hire someone to do that and then be hands off. Right. And then be hands off to a certain degree and say, okay, now this is what I want. Now you go do that and then do your thing. So you brought up Doug Marone ex-coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. RJ is a Jaguars fan. I don't know many Jaguars fans. Because, Unfortunately. because how many Jaguars fans are there, really? <laughs> I mean, just I, I, I pass through Jacksonville a fair amount uh, because my parents live, uh, you know, about 90 minutes north of Jacksonville. I love that airport, by the way. It's a quality airport. Quality, yeah, quality airport. Yeah, small. Get through it in and out real quick. The, the the rental cars are right across the street from the terminal. That's like solid, solid stuff. Easy to gas up on the way back to the airport. It's a great airport. Anyway, you're a Jags fan. Urban Meyer is now the Jags coach. 
uh, Urban Meyer, the uh, his the early part of the Urban Meyer tenure was met with hope and optimism. By early part, I meant the first few weeks, and then last week, Urban Meyer announces a you know a bunch of of, of coaching hires, and among them is Chris Doyle, former uh, fired pushed out Iowa strength and conditioning coach because Iowa had a uh, literally dozens of complaints and allegations from former players, mostly black players, saying that this guy, he just, he, you know, he didn't treat us well. He, he just did not treat us well. It was basically allegations of racism, many of them from many established players, from guys in the NFL. Iowa investigated, interviewed about 110 people, came away with saying, you know what, Chris Doyle, you've been a very well-paid employee here at this university for a long time, generally very well-regarded, but you got to go. Um, and Mervyn and Meyer, here's a million dollars on your way. And, and by the way, yeah, $1.1 million on the way out to settle it. So 52-year-old, 53-year-old coach, strength and conditioning coach with a $1.1 million uh, salary on the way or severance on the way out the door. And Urban Meyer decided, I got to have that guy. And it did not go well. And in two days, Chris Doyle resigned, whatever that, however that plays out. So, I, I mean, it's sort of like your thoughts, you know, <laughs> but like, yeah, like I, as, so let's just start as a, as a Jags fan. Let me ask you this, because I didn't think it would end that quickly frankly i maybe i was not i clearly was naive i did i didn't think it was gonna end i i i did not think this was gonna happen oh, so, i thought that it so was you're gonna, with me so i so i was like no they're gonna ride this out <laughs> oh yeah and because so remember they're not slick right they did this the day before trevor lawrence's pro day and trevor lawrence's pro day was a friday before a holiday weekend so you announce it in a Twitter thread on Thursday. Urban Meyer has the press conference, takes the lumps in the press conference on Thursday afternoon. Friday, Urban flies to uh, Clemson for Trevor Lawrence's pro day. Okay, the entire Jaguars news cycle moves on to the future quarterback. And and they were going to sort of weather the storm out into the holiday weekend. And then everybody was going to forget about it. It's now Tuesday the 16th. That was, I guarantee that was the plan because and it's the Jags say, and a strength coach. Because ultimately, yes. you can you also play it that way. Like, listen, it's the Jags and a strength coach. We're going to move on. Yes, yeah. And and it, it, as far as unforced errors go, you did not have to do this. I mean, it's like the strength strength coach in the NFL, and I'm painting with a broad brush. But a strength, I think he was director of player the de- sports uh, performance, sports performance, whatever the hell yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> strength coaches in the NFL really are not doing a ton of stuff for seven months at a time. Like they may run the mini camp after the rookies get drafted and you're telling guys to stretch, et cetera, et cetera. But your good players are not working out at the facility during in August or excuse me in, in May. Like that's not happening. Now you may have sway over training camp and, and in season lifts and that sort of stuff. But for the bulk of it, this was not this is not a key hire as it would be in um, in college football where Urban is from, uh, and and it, it you just didn't have to do this. So Urban gets up there and does the cockamamie thing where white guys when white guys hire crappy other white guys, he says, "Well, I vetted him and uh, and also made it a point to say that the GM and owner vetted him as well." That is a key point. Which means that everybody was fine with the things that Chris Doyle is accused of doing. Um, Chris Doyle's reputation is obviously quite good as far as what he actually does in his actual job. But it was also conspicuous that, if you'll remember, 13 Iowa players a few years ago went to the hospital with with rhabdo. rhabdo. Yeah. Because they were all pissing blood. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this guy has a spotless record in his actual job, much less the off the field uh, interaction with Iowa players or whatever. So Urban Meyer gets up there and says, you know, I, I, I spoke to people around Chris and da da da, whatever that means. And what it usually means is you talk, he probably talked to Kirk Ferentz, he probably talked to, 
Chris's friends or the intermediaries that he has uh, within the coaching industry or whatever. And he heard what he wanted to hear, which is that Chris is a good guy and this is all fabricated and da 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 da. Um, I highly doubt Urban Meyer spoke to the scores of players, as you've referenced, that Iowa spoke to during the investigation that ended Chris uh, Chris Doyle's employment at Iowa. I highly doubt Urban Meyer got on the horn and did that. So at the end of the day, let's call this what it was. Urban Meyer wanted to hire Chris Doyle, so he did. And that is as simple as it gets, I think, in situations like this. Oh, how could they do that? Da, 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 da. It, it just Urban Meyer wanted to do it, so he did it. So a couple things there. Um, your point about, right, what, what is this position relative to what it is in, in, in college football? Urban Meyer, to a certain degree, in, I, I wouldn't say he invented the strength and conditioning coach because because really Nebraska did that. Right? <laughs> if you want to go yes, way back yeah. in college football, but um, but Urban Meyer created this this model of strength and conditioning coach as first lieutenant with yes. Mickey Marotti, um, who was his longtime guy at Florida, brought him to Ohio State, and Mick was consigliere. Mick, I mean, like Mick sort of it's culture builder it's also i I hate to say fixer because that's kind of a pejorative but it's fixer in terms of like hey we got an issue with some of these guys you got to get a message across to them and sometimes that message is running stairs and flipping tires but sometimes that message is literally a message like right like hey his girlfriend is this or that or he you know mom is yelling at him or that sort of because they the strength coaches in college spend a ton of time with these guys versus what a head coach actually can right Right, right. So so you are eyes and ears of the program to a certain degree when you are a strength and conditioning coach in college. So uh, that again, that is not what it is in college, in pro football in, in talking with like Bruce Feldman who who works in sort of has a, has a foot in both worlds more than I am. I don't really have a ton of uh uh traction in the NFL world, but I was talking with Bruce and you know, he talked to some of his coach then the coaches he's close with who have had a lot of time in the NFL. He's and he actually said, you know, one of the things that's really valued at the strength and conditioning coaches at the NFL level is the ability to sort of like work one-on-one like a lot of these guys have their own trainers but if they see you as a guy they can trust and hey it's the off season but like what do you recommend for me and what can like what can I take from what you're recommending from our positions and things along those lines it's just such a different thing so that leads me to sort of believe so if so where where I'm going with that is if it's a completely different job like what are the skill sets that Doyle had that made this so enticing to hire him? Uh, again, like it becomes, hey, Urban just wanted to hire this guy. So that in that case, it becomes a baffling thing, right? Because the job is so different. I don't know why you would value those skill sets quite the same at the NFL level. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it speaks to the the what sort of what sort of NFL coach is Urban Meyer going to be? And this is what leads me to wonder. I I, I don't have I honestly I actually kind of like the coaching staff. Um I, I think he's basically Urban's hired uh some ex Seahawk assistants on offense and he's hired some ex Ravens assistants on defense, uh, as well as Chris Ash and Charlie Strong on defense. So the defense is sort of a mix of Ravens guys and college guys. Um, but as far as you know, football ops and and, and outside of on field coaching, what is Urban Meyer gonna be? Because this is as a Jags fan, I am not terribly worried to be honest with you about what the on the field product is going to look like i trevor's going to come in and make up for a lot of sins and i think they're going to be i think they're going to be fine ish on offense i'm actually or on on the field i'm actually pretty excited for it but as far as what this program has really struggled with in the last few years is the off the field culture stuff of retaining your good free agents. There's a reason why Jalen Ramsey forced a trade, right? And for these ja- for the Jaguars to have Tom Coughlin in the building a few years ago, Tom Coughlin alienated so many players. Tom Coughlin broke off contract contract negotiations during the offseason with Yannick Ngakwe. And Ngakwe was traded months later. The the you know, Tom Coughlin at, at some point in time 
20% of the NFLPA's grievances from players were from the Jaguars players because of Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin uh, voided the guarantees or tried to void the guarantees in Leonard Fournette's uh, contract rookie deal because Leonard Fournette during a week 16 game was like laughing on the sideline when they were losing. Like it's that my way or the highway crap that got the Jaguars in this situation in the first place going one in 15 with no talent. Now, what happens next as far as changing the culture of the program? And if Urban Meyer is going to come in and do more of this hard ass stuff, which is what a Chris Doyle leads me to believe, at least as far as the off field program and stuff uh, goes, what does that say about the fact that Urban Meyer has uh, final say on personnel and will be the one who is shaping this whole deal. Urban Meyer is not sharing this with Trent Baalke as far as what the football operation is going to look like the general manager Trent Baalke is. Uh, it's Urban Meyer's way or the highway. And that, I think, is going to be a problem. And for 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 Urban Meyer and for the Jaguars in this league, to there is, uh, I believe it's four black strength coaches in the NFL. For them to go through the year that they just went through with and racism painted on the field, and it takes all of us painted on the field and the NFL doing initiatives around social justice, et cetera, et cetera. For the Jaguars to sit here and and understand that that is the plight of the sport and you have this role that is more one-to-one, as you've said, Ralph, with players and to then understand that the NFL is roughly 70% black and then go hire a guy who was uh, accused by scores to be a racist. What are we doing here? Because it did not take an advanced private eye level of vetting to find the very clear skeletons that are in Chris Doyle's closet. They're not even in the closet. They're in the foyer. Like, do three Googles and you'll figure out the, the public report and all this kind of stuff. So I sit here and I wonder... What were we really doing here? And, you know, the fact that the Jaguars thought they could take this on the chin for a few days and just ride it out, I think says something a bit troubling about the way this might go. Okay, so here's my last thought on this. And I go here when I think about Bryles every six to eight months when somebody gets an idea. Hey, I'll hire this guy. Isn't that a great idea? And <laughs> and that then goes to hell because we've gone through that dance over the last, like, what, like four or five years now where somebody thinks, oh, I got a good idea. Maybe I'll hire Art Bryles and people come out and say, no, that's a terrible idea. So <laughs> he, my mind goes here for the – to, to, my mind go, went to Bryles for the same when, – when I heard about the Doyle thing for a similar reason. And you mentioned uh, – you sort of breezed through it. There are a lot of people who can do these jobs. Right. right. We, we we got up these coaches and we've done it with strength coaches now too. like, oh, it's the most important hire the, the head coach can make in college football. So now we become OK. Now they're in, indispensable, too. And listen, I understand that there are good coaches and there are bad coaches, but there's also a lot of coaches who who are equally competent. Right. And given a there's chance, just a lot of coaches. Yeah. And given <laughs> a chance, I'm sure you could find 15, 20 30 guys with similar skill sets to Chris Doyle who don't who were not fired for being racist. And, and I go to that when I think of Bryles and Doyle because I know a lot of coaches and I think like I, I'm sure a lot of guys would love the opportunity to get one of 32 NFL jobs and are totally right. qualified to get one of 32 NFL jobs and they got passed by. And they don't have fired for racism on their on their resume. And they don't have massive sexual assault scandal running a renegade a rogue program like Bryles has. So the idea that we feel that these I'm all for second chances. And there's a zillion junior colleges that play college that play football and high schools that play football. There's a there's a ton of places you can go coach football that's not the NFL. That's not a major college. So, sure, let's give them a second chance. But there's a whole bunch of coaches out there that I think would be more deserving of these chances than somebody like Chris Doyle and Art Bryles. And that's where I go and, and, when I when I see these situations. And we, uh, we everybody knows 
Urban Meyer is Mr. Second Chance. Everybody deserves a second chance. Um, everybody deserves a second chance if they're a five-star recruit, so to speak. Um, Urban Meyer will overlook a whole host of things. Cough, cough. Zach Smith. Cough, cough. If you can do for him to contribute to a championship program. Um, obviously, there's a little sprinkle of nepotism with the Zach Smith thing. So this is a little bit different. But Urban Meyer, that is his MO. That is his thing. And I guarantee he even answered. Somebody said, how do you know uh, this won't happen again or whatever? And like basically all he said was like, well, it better not happen again. Well, I'm just like, that's that's not good enough. And if you deserve a second chance, like, all right, you want to believe in second chances? Cool. Does a second chance mean a promotion to the highest level of your field? Right. That's not a second chance. That's just a promotion. When And that's a failing upwards more than anything else because, again, as we've both said, the guy got fired. So, yeah, I mean, Urban Meyer did what Urban Meyer wanted to do, and he found out the limits of a, of a professional football coach pretty quickly into his tenure here. Well, I do hope Trevor Lawrence works out for you. I'm still a little bitter, though I've really done a pretty good job of convincing myself that Zach Wilson might be the <laughs> next Patrick Mahomes for my Jets. I like a lot of the options there at number two. I, 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 I kind of like Justin Fields. Again, I've recovered from the losing Trevor Lawrence because we decided to win a couple of games down the stretch. Um, and I blame the Rams as much as anything and, and, and as the Jets for that. But again, I hope you have a lot of fun and enjoy enjoy Trevor Lawrence and um uh and maybe do the same with Urban Meyer cuz I right, I don't think I don't think Urban even if even if things don't go well with Urban Trevor will make up for a lot of those Absolutely and for that I can't wait <laughs> Richard Johnson can be found at Split Zone Duo Podcast with his friends Alex Kirshner and Stephen Godfrey. You can follow him at RJ underscore rights on Twitter. And where else can we find your terrific work, Richard? For now, I uh, I get to rest a little bit. I get to rest. <laughs> I get to do um, basically whatever I want now that um, now that. The seasons are over both college and pro. So I will be popping up a little bit here and there during draft run up and during the off season with some stuff. But for now, the podcast is the main home. Uh, and, uh, well, there will be some surprises during the off season about where I'll be freelancing in uh, some different places and, and even some different sports. You never know. Oh, and pop the book here because I, you know, you're the one, uh, uh guy from the crew that I have on frequently. So pop the book one more time. Absolutely. The the book is Sinful Seven Sci-Fi Western Legends of the NCAA. It's a history of college sports and the NCAA that you will actually find interesting because uh, reading about the NCAA can be paint dry, boring. Uh, but we tell a half fiction, half nonfiction, uh, rollicking Western tale uh, about how college sports got to be basically what it is um and uh, it's the most interesting project i've ever worked on and and probably will ever work on i wrote it with spencer hall uh, alex kirshner my podcast co-host jason kirk and and illustrations by tyson whiting it's an ebook you can get it at sinful7.com uh and basically if you got a device that works with an ebook phone ipad kindle whatever it'll work on that device um so check it out i I think it's really good selfishly (laughs) and uh is definitely worth your time they are some very twisted minds but they know a lot about college football, so it makes makes for a good it makes for a good read. So, RJ, thanks so much for coming on and uh, breaking some stuff down with me this week. Absolutely. And now three and out, first down. UCF closed the FBS coaching carousel by hiring former Auburn coach Gus Malzahn as head coach earlier this week. How's that going to work out? Well, there are a few ways to look at it. Pro, Malzahn has never had a losing record in nine seasons as a head coach, eight of those in the SEC, and he was 12 games over 500 in SEC play. Coaches who have had that level of success for that length of time at that level of competition are not often available in college football these days. It would seem to be, at the very least, a low floor higher. Pretty safe. Con. Malzahn is an offensive coach whose offense 
has been inconsistent and often mediocre for several years. His offense has not been a place where quarterbacks have routinely thrived and developed, at least not since his one year with Cam Newton when he was offensive coordinator at Auburn and the Tigers won the national championship back in 2010. Pro. Malzahn has been recruiting in Florida for years. Con, at 55 and eight years removed from his best run at Auburn, is Malzahn the type of coach that will really excite recruits? Plus, recruiting should never really be a problem for UCF, a school located in the heart of Florida that competes in the American Athletic Conference with schools like Temple, Navy, East Carolina, and Memphis. Anybody competent should really be able to recruit well at UCF. Pro, UCF got Malzahn at a good price, $2.3 million per year over five years. That's not bad for his resume, but the Knights could probably take a little discount because Gus just got $21.5 million from Auburn to go away. Con, UCF has branded itself as a disruptor, a threat to the Blue Bloods, the traditional powers of college football. The next great college football program, one that is battling and trying to break the establishment. Is your brand best served by hiring an SEC retread instead of a younger coach like, let's say, Sean Lewis from Kent State, for example? I try not to make predictions and grade hires anymore. There is just too much uncertainty. On Twitter, I said that this was a great landing spot for Malzahn. It is a place where you can win and win big. Whether Malzahn was a great get for UCF is to be determined. A lot of folks in Houston were really excited when the Cougars lured Daner Holgerson away from West Virginia. And so far, the results there have been pretty underwhelming. Second down, since we last recorded, Oregon's Tyler Shuck became the latest high-profile quarterback to enter the transfer portal. Shuck was the Ducks' starter last season, played pretty well early, and his performance tapered off late in the season. The thought was Shuck and BC transfer Anthony Brown would compete for the job to start next year, but the player to watch is freshman Ty Thompson. I think the hope in Eugene was Shuck and Brown would allow coaches to be patient with Thompson so he could be unleashed in 2022. But Shuck's departure suggests that the future is now. Players tend to know when the guy behind them is going to take their job. Shuck leaves as a grad transfer, immediately eligible, with three years left to play college football. Third down. I mentioned this last week, but we're going to keep bringing it up to make sure listeners know that we want you to be a part of the show. If you have questions that you'd like me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on all topics, college football, serious or silly. That's aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. Looking forward to your contributions. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast, just about anywhere you'd like to get your podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. <laughs>